This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 15 through 23. Hear God's word. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is God's word. We're starting a new mini-series this morning, it's for August, um, called Paradox. Getting what you want, but not how you wanted to get it. Paradox defined is this, a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. And we find in God's Word, all over God's Word, and especially through life in Christ, and experiencing life in Christ, absurd possibility becoming reality. Where the goal of what we want and what God wants for us doesn't seem to mesh up well with the method of getting there. But it's God's way. Just kind of as an FYI, the Holy Spirit use two things to kind of inspire this series and start to put it in this crazy brain of mine. Uh, stupidity and song. All right, so I want to share this with you. The stupidity, as you might have already guessed, was my own. Um, I just hit a point back in the spring where multiple roads of stubbornness in my life kind of came together. They all came to a crossroads, a point of frustration. And... You know, I started to think, man, you know, God promises. He promises goodness towards us, provision towards us, life towards us, abundant life, fullness of joy. And all of us say, yes, please. I'll take some. But when he tells me how to get it, and to say to God, yeah, but Lord, have you, con- have you considered maybe this way? Have you considered maybe taking a different route? So my walk with God and marriages and my finances, my friendships, it's often my way versus his way. And you can imagine who wins out, which is why we're doing the sermon series today. <laughs> um, also came through a favorite song. I was listening to a song one day that reminded me that his way is the exact opposite of what we think will work. 
through a song written by a guy named Rich Mullins, who died in 1997 before singing it. And so his friend Mitch McVicker sang it. It's a song called When You Love. And there's a line in the song, just hit me one day, you know, singing in the car. There's a rest you find in work. You can't get out of sleep. There's a healing that may hurt. There's a war that must be waged for peace. He says, it doesn't come ready-made. If you want to be free, you must become a slave. In other words, all of these paradoxes. And it's going to be this last one I just mentioned that we'll tackle this morning, which is freedom through slavery. All right? So before you get the wrong idea, freedom through slavery... We're not going to flash back to America of the 19th century, that kind of slavery, or Britain of the 18th century, for that matter, uh, South Africa of the 20th century. That kind of slavery and enslavement. I want to understand, just for the record, that I do believe every person should be legally and politically free, free to select their own form of slavery, all right, their own form of chains. You'll, you'll see what I mean this morning. The passage we read from this morning, Romans 6, reaffirms that God wants us to be free. He wants freedom for our lives, but paradoxically, we get there through slavery. So I want you to see this morning, I really want you to see three things in this passage in Romans 6. One, the idea of freedom. Secondly, the illusion of freedom. And thirdly, the choice for the freest freedom. All right, so the idea of freedom, the illusion of freedom, and then the choice we have for the freest freedom. So first, the idea of freedom. You know this, and I know this, friends. We live in an age where uh, of freedom worship at its finest. Political freedom, you know, freedom of speech, religious freedom, economic freedom, for those who are a bit older, freedom from demand. Remember that? Or in recent times, even certain foods like French fries were liberated to become freedom fries. Where I'm from, all right? Because apparently the French weren't free enough. <laughs> of all freedoms, modern history has pointed towards an exalted personal liberty individual liberty as the highest of all liberties. It started in the Renaissance back in the 16th century, really surged through a time of the Enlightenment. It got kind of crazy back in the 60s, right, with that kind of freedom. And into today. So I looked at a lot of just important voices of freedom this past week and crafted sort of a pop culture definition of personal freedom that we're going to use this morning. And it's this. Personal freedom is this ability to decide between two or more good and relatively equal choices. Fair enough? Now, now the uh, key to this definition is once choices become less equal, it's not really much of a choice, is it? You kind of just have to do it. Now, we'll see two problems with this notion of popular sort of freedom and personal freedom in a moment. But for now, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul saw this kind of freedom at work in his day, back in the first century, and he writes about it towards the Romans. He says in Romans 6.15, What then? What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? 
Paul has asked this question for a second time now. Second time in chapter 6, because he spent the previous five chapters in the book of Romans explaining that by trusting the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we are set free from the bondage to both a religious life of trying to gain extra credit with God, so he'll accept us, so he'll favor us more by obeying the law, and we're set free from the penalty from not being able to obey that law. So he spent five chapters in Romans talking about this, and he recognizes, though, that people might take advantage of this. They might get the wrong idea. You can understand how freedom, freedom from doing good, from good works as extra credit with God, might lead to certain indulgence. It might, might lead to drinking when there's, whenever there's free time. Because, oh, because of grace, drinking in and of itself, drinking alcohol is not bad. So whenever there's free time, I'll drink. Wealth, when money is to be made. Because in Christ, money in of itself is not bad. Nice threads, right? Whenever I can afford it. Because having nice things isn't bad. So whenever I can get it, I'll get it for myself. Spending time entertaining ourselves. Because entertainment, even secular entertainment, isn't in and of itself bad. So that's how I'll keep spending myself and spending my time and spending my resources. And Paul says, by no means. Because freedom entails being free from those indulgences too. Not just free to do them, but to be free from them. So we can ask ourselves even now, like, do we just as regularly refrain from those things? Spending our time whenever drinking, spending our time whenever buying stuff just for ourselves, getting nice things, entertaining ourselves. Do we ever refrain from those things? Because freedom means freedom from those things as well. Does that make sense? Paul, what he does then, he goes on to shatter our illusions about that kind of freedom. That we're free then to just do whatever we want, whenever we want to, because of what Jesus did on the cross. Totally shatters our illusions. Look with me at Romans 6, starting in verse 16. He says, do you, don't, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now skip down with me to verse 20. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. The end of those things is death. So what Paul does here, he shatters our illusions about personal freedom and no author or thinker has ever before or in many ways since described. And it's one of these things to me here in Romans 6 that sets the Bible apart. One of these things that you can look at even if you don't yet know Jesus and think, wow, the Bible is brilliant. And ultimately, hopefully, the Bible really is the word of God. There's something about it that's so true that describes experience in a way that no one else has before. And it's hard to hear a little bit, but you know, wow, that's true. I remember taking a university philosophy course for this very reason. There was this course, university called Freedom of the Will. And I was thinking, man, is there any other author or thinker who, who talks about, 
there being really two choices in life. You can be a slave to one or a slave to the other, and there isn't. Until about 15 years ago, where there was a brilliant work of art called The Matrix. <laughs> That's right, The Matrix. You know it, I know it, you love it. Katie, my wife, watched the, finally watched The Matrix with me. She'd never seen it before. Uh, I saw it for the first time this past spring, and she fell asleep. So, and, and surprisingly not from Keanu Reeves' acting either, so... I take a shot, uh, if you haven't noticed, every year I take one shot at Keanu Reeves, that's my second. Last year it was The Lake House, this year The Matrix, next year Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, we'll see, we'll see what happens, <laughs> some of you don't get that, it's okay though. Alright, so The Matrix, <laughs> it's a sci-fi movie, if you had never seen it before, it's, it's whatever, but it's decent. Pretty good. And the interesting thing about it, when you go to see, you're like, wow, this sort of parallels a lot of the life of Christ and the Bible. And there's a scene in the movie where a leader of a small band of brave souls who eat nothing but cream of wheat, uh, tell, he tells the protagonist, Neo, the truth about a world that Neo thinks is real. This guy's name is Morpheus, and he brings Neo in. He says, I, w- I want to give you the opportunity to hear the truth about the world you think is real, the world you live in. And he has this profound comedy. He says, I can offer you the truth, nothing more. And that truth is shattering. For this man who thought he's lived his whole life, whole life making his own choices and free to do whatever he wishes, what he conceives as personal freedom is actually slavery. In the movie, he's living in a world where you know, computers have begun to dominate the world and have begun to deceive human beings and think that the life they live is real, but it's not. In fact, there's just one character in the movie who's living in reality. He's living in the cream of wheat reality. He's eating slop every night, dressed in rags, who actually chooses to numb himself and be reinserted back into the matrix, back into a life of illusion. You can understand why. Who likes cream of wheat? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe you do. <laughs> you, no, you don't. Come on. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you tolerate it because it's good for you. Like, you know, it helps your immune system. I don't know. But he chooses to numb himself. I'd rather be a slave but feel like I'm free. I feel like I, I have pleasure in my life. So this morning, I get to be like Morpheus to you guys, presenting the truth and nothing more from Romans 6. Because there are two choices in life, friends. You can live under an illusion and still be enslaved, or live under a God who chose to bond you to himself. Now, I found this truth, and, and just being a pastor the last 12 years, it's harder to accept the longer you're a Christian. For those of you who've trusted your life to Jesus early in your life, you kind of can't remember when you trusted Christ because it was maybe like three, four, five, six, something like that. And for those of you who've walked with the Lord maybe for a while, this truth is a little bit harder, I find, for such folks to accept because as you look across the divide to no obligations kind of life, Right, across the divide to no obligations, gain without pain, the 31 flavors dating, right, the Friday night life, the Sunday morning sleep in, and that life looks pretty good. 
It's the life in Christ that may start to seem like the matrix. Right? It's the life in Christ that might seem to be the illusion. What am I gaining from this? And actually, I want to encourage you when you feel that way. When you want to just kind of, you're tempted to, to cross over that divide and, you know, steal a nibble or two from that life. I want to encourage you that feeling, at least, happens in large part because that you battle with this because you've grown so far from death. You've grown so far from death that you forgot about how deadly that life is. You forgot about how that life is so empty. So I want to encourage you, first of all, you you have those feelings, you face that battle because you've grown. It's been a long time since you indulged in that life. I want to encourage you to keep going and to remember that life has no fruit but the fruit of death. We know from experience that individual freedom is an illusion. It's an illusion. Two ways you've likely experienced the illusion of freedom. First way is this. Rarely does life serve up both a good and relatively equal choice. Rarely does life actually give us a good and relatively equal choice. Give you some examples. Stay indoors or go kite surfing on the beach or sitting on the beach even. It's dependent on what the weather presents you, right? Especially this time of year. In your job, financial opportunities. You want to prepare for a client, maybe for their portfolio. It's restricted by the client's financial state. All right, what, what's, their, what's their debt-to-income ratio? What can I recommend based on their financial history, their bank accounts, etc.? You're restricted. Or you want to go on vacation if you have that luxury. So it might not be a luxury for you. It might be dictated by money. Family happenings, you know, is my cousin Bobby getting married? I've got to go do that. That's a week. Right? Season of life, right? Uh, Machu Picchu is likely a non-option if you have young kids, right? I mean, taking them up that mountain is likely a non-option unless you want to sacrifice them to local gods. I don't recommend that, by the way. That's awful. And it's likely a non-option. If you're, if you're 80 years old or 90 years old, it's, un, it's unwise to walk up a mountain unless you want to be added to the burial sarcophagi. You know, you want, I want to add myself to those tombs. <laughs> so I'll go. You see what I'm saying here? It's so often decisions are dictated by circumstances that leave you really with one viable option. Like the package of deli meat in the fridge that doesn't smell of your grandmother's basement, right? Which you can choose to use for lunch. Not much of a choice. It's either the two slices of turkey or I'm not going hungry. Rarely does life serve up choices that are multiple and equally good. But when we do get to choose, we really, really get to choose between good and relatively equal options. And it does happen. We tend to choose it over and over again. We tend to choose that thing that we enjoy over and over again until it's no longer a choice nor enjoyable but starts to become an addiction. That makes sense? When you take a good thing, mostly good things in life, and make them into ultimate things. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. 
Okay, the good thing, you put it in a position of God, that's idolatry. When you choose it over and over again, that's when addiction starts to happen. You like something so much that you earn the necessary money to climb the ladder. You make the necessary arrangements. You make the necessary money to keep on doing it. Keep on indulging. Until eventually we suck all the enjoyment out of something God created to be good and we keep going to it anyhow. Even though it robs us of life, as Romans 6 talks about, even though there's no life in it anymore, we still keep going back to it, thinking that it will give us life, and it doesn't. So I read a ton on addiction this week, like scholarly stuff and just pop culture stuff on addiction. And and basically, one of the conclusions I came from it is there is never in history have so many people, have so many people teetered so closely to so many addictions at once. Let me say that again. Never in history have so many people teetered so closely to so many addictions at once. Not just the fact that maybe each of us has a potential addiction in our life, but a lot of people have multiple addictions that are so close to their lives that they're just teetering on they're flirting with, or they're in and out of. There are many reasons for this, but one conclusion I kind of came away with from from my reading was when you take a decreased attention span, all right, you talk about the echo generation, generation Y, most of you guys are in your 20s, early 30s. When you take a decreased attention span, and you have a premium on like higher feelings as the greatest truth. So decrease attention span, feelings, 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 whatever I feel must be true, especially the best feelings, and you combine that with increased outlets for instant gratification, it's a pretty toxic mix. Let me give you some examples of some of those outlets. They're not just what you think. They're not just reasons for PSA commercials you know, on, on television and You know, parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. It's not just that. Facebook, immediate relational highs. You can just get that. Technology, especially new technology, right? The new thing. Technology. I read 70%, one survey I read, 70% of people uh, are on their smartphone, tablet, or laptop while watching TV. In other words, one outlet won't do. 70% 70% will survey. Food. You can get whatever flavor, whatever amount. Video games. You can have success outside of reality. Play a video game. It's awesome. Alcohol, partying. Right? More accepted. More accepted. Even amongst Christians. S-E-X. We have kids here this morning. Right? Less clothes and more pillow talk. I mean, it's just there. You overchoose these outlets until they are no longer a choice anymore, are they? They're no longer a joy as they were meant to be. There's this moment in the Bible where God's people are shipped off as prisoners for 70 years to Babylon. And when they returned, They finally had their individual freedom back, including money. 
prosperity. The temple that they worshipped in, which was their church, was a wreck. And you understand, the temple was huge back then. More important than a church building is now because the temple was God's place, his designed place where God met man. Heaven met earth. So when they returned and they had all this money and personal freedom, God's temple was a wreck. But God's people chose to expand to larger houses, have all granite you know, in their kitchens, these sorts of things. And I want you to see what God says to them. And I really want you to feel the truth, feel the truth of God's word here, okay? This is from Haggai, who speaks to these people. God speaks through him. Here's what God says, Haggai 1, 4 through 6. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Or think about that as like a pocket with holes. You see what's happening? What is Haggai talking about? He didn't know the, the term we use now for it, but he's talking about addiction, isn't he? You earn more. But it doesn't satisfy. You just lose it. You eat and indulge yourselves, but it doesn't fill you up. Choice is overchosen until it becomes an addiction. There's no life in it any longer. There's no choice in it. Some of you friends are there. You, you, you sense you know what I'm talking about. You're flirting with it or you're in it. I'm trying to still get life out of something that's not God. Just keep going back to it, but there's no life there. There's no joy. Thankfully, Paul lays out the second option. The freest freedom you can have. The lifest life you can have is choosing to submit. Totally selling out to Jesus. Which is what slavery is, right? Selling out to Jesus. Listen to what he says in verses 17 through 19 here. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So with all this that's hard to hear, and we know, yeah, yeah, Ryan, I know I'm there. I know I'm teetering, I'm flirting with addiction, or I'm there. Paul says, thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become or can become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's the idea, over-choosing lawlessness, leads to more lawlessness, it's empty. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Skip down to verse 22. But now you've been set free from sin, you've been slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Wages of sins, death, the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you sell out to Jesus, every aspect of your life under his submission, 
There's a rightness to it. So when you hear the word righteousness, I know that can be one of those head nodders like we talked about last week. Yeah, righteousness, I've heard that. It's a Bible term. Think about it in terms of there's a rightness to it. There's a solidness to submitting your life to God completely. There's a lastingness. Like, like the contractor who takes no shortcuts and builds a building with material that lasts. Is it costly? Yeah. Does it take more time? Yeah, sometimes. Is it inconvenient? Yeah, it's inconvenient. But there's a solidity to it. There's a lastingness to it. There's a rightness to it. When you submit your lives to God, you start to sense that. There's a rightness to this. And a strange sense of freedom I never had before. Even though I'm no longer my own. That leads to sanctification. Sanctification, as you practice righteousness, you become more like Jesus, which is what sanctification is. It doesn't mean you become less yourself, you lose your personality. You become more like the self that God created you to be. Become more like the self he intended you to be, but unfortunately has been marred and twisted by sin. That's what happens in sanctification. And that finally ends in eternal life with God. I want to sort of, last part of my, my sermon this morning, give you a picture, an example of such a person. Such a person who submits fully to, there's, there are many great saints throughout history, and there are many of you actually here whose stories I've heard, encouraging stories of submission to God, stepping out in faith, increasingly submitting more of your lives to God, and actually you're going to hear a testimony in a little bit of a couple who's done that. But I want to give you a picture you can look back to, you can go back to again and again and again in God's word. It's the example of a woman named Ruth. Ruth, it's a book in the Old Testament. You should read it sometime. It's a great one. Named after the key figure in the story, Ruth. It's the example, this this story of Ruth is often used as an example of friendship you often see it in women's Bible studies of women being friends to each other and encouraging each other, and it's great. But this morning, I hope you'll see and remember her as an example of radical submission that leads to perfect freedom. And I know those words sound like they can't go together. How can my enslaving myself, submitting myself completely to someone else lead to perfect freedom? I want to show you in Ruth. A man named Elimelech takes his wife and two sons across the border from Israel into a place called Moab because of a famine. So picture a man and his wife, no food, they had two kids, two boys. They go to a place called Moab. And while things are hard for them, they're doing it together as a family. They're a happy family together. Right? We're going through this struggle together. We're going to do it together. We're going to find food together. We're going to be together. And they are. And they do. But along the way, over time, Elimelech dies. The dad dies. Some time passes. The two sons get married. Then they die. Now, the theme of the book may seem like, don't get married. <laughs> I understand that. Like, that's <laughs> are you saying that just, you're just going to die off if you get married? I, that doesn't happen. Elimelech, you know, his now very old and widowed wife, 
she realizes, I've got nobody here. I'm going to head back towards Jerusalem. All I have are, I have these two women who are like my daughters-in-law, and so I'm just going to go back where I came from. Obviously very downcast with nothing. The two women kind of look at each other like, I don't know where she's going. What are we supposed to do? She graciously encourages those women, Orpah and Ruth, to return to their people. Go, just stay at Moab. Return to their ways. Return to their gods. She essentially says, look, my way is going to be a way of suffering. In fact, she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. But you, you still have life. Your whole life's ahead of you, you young, beautiful whippersnapper ladies. You can still get married, have kids, etc. And Orpah's like, cool, peace. <laughs> she sits out of there and she's like, that's good with me. She gives her a kiss and she leaves. But, here's what the Bible says, but Ruth clung to her. She goes on to say, for where you will go, Naomi, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more, if anything but death parts me from you. I mean, how awesome is that? It's like one of the greatest sort of responses of love in history. Those lines. You just wrap that up in a Hallmark card and give it to someone on your 20th anniversary. And my gosh. And they return. She actually tries to say, no, 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 no. She realizes, this woman is serious. She's not going to let anything but death separate us. So Naomi guides Ruth. They go back together. Ruth doesn't know the ways of the land. Naomi guides her. She says, yeah, go to this field. Go to this field of this nice man. And go behind the workers of the wheat. And they'll leave behind wheat. You can pick up. There was this, this idea in that time, this agricultural world of God took care of his people. He helped people take care of each other. By when they would reap the wheat from the harvest, anything left over that's left on the ground, you just leave behind. So the people who don't have enough food can have food. It was a cool way for God to take care of his people. So that's what she did. Well, the field she goes to, it turns out the owner of the field is known to Naomi. In fact, they are relatives. The man named Boaz, who owns this field and many other fields, is in fact Naomi's kinsman redeemer. What is that? Uh, God's law back then commanded Boaz to redeem a direct family line if they're no longer males to carry on that family line. Okay, right? The, kind of the idea is the name's going to die out. And so a kinsman redeemer, the next of kin, comes in and he actually marries sort of the next available, the of age woman who can have children. And that's Ruth. So Naomi brings this to Ruth's attention. Ruth brings this to Boaz's attention. He obeys and actually takes care of her and marries her. And together they have a son. They have a family. And Naomi's life can continue on. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap 
She became his nurse, and they named him Obed. Ruth chooses unconditional, go wherever you take me submission. Now I want you to see the three things that are true in Romans 6 about Ruth. There's a rightness about it. Even when she chooses to follow her mother-in-law, even though knowing it's, a, it's the hard way, you felt it, right? There was a rightness about it. There was a profound yes about it. Wow. Did you sense it? Just a rightness about it. Even though it's, take me wherever you go, I'm giving up my freedom, individual freedom, illusion of freedom. There's a sanctification all around it. People who are becoming more like Jesus, becoming the people God intended them to be through Christ. Look at Naomi. She gets to be a nurse to a grandchild. A life that looked like it was going to be just bitterness, a widow, an old woman who may have lots of cats, kind of like just, just living her last days by herself. You have Boaz, who becomes the kind of person I think he was created to be. He's a generous man. He's waiting for his moment. He becomes the person he's created to be, a kinsman redeemer. How cool is that title? How great would that be to have on, on your office desk, kinsman redeemer? Everyone in town, in fact, says of him, may his name be renowned in Israel. And it is. It's here in the Bible. He becomes who God created him to be. Sanctification all around this act of submission. And finally, its end is eternal life. And this is the coolest part. Now, we know it ends in life, right? Because his son is born. His name's Obed. He's a baby. New life comes out of it. Brian, how do we see eternal life in this story? All these people are going to die. No, but there is eternal life. Ruth's submission ends in eternal life. I want to show you how. Ruth 4, 18 through 22, the very last verses. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Here's the genealogy. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amonadab. Amenadab, sorry, Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. It might be Salmon, but since we know Salmon, is Salmon the fish. I'm going to say that. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Then King David. Now, if you skip ahead to the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1 through 16, the book of genealogy, book the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Skipping ahead, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Notice he mentions Ruth on purpose here. The only time, or one of the few times you hear women in this genealogy. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king. Go skip ahead. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born, who is called the Christ. Eternal life comes through Ruth's act of submission. Ah, I'm getting chill bumps right now. Just think of that. What does that look like for you, friends? What does total sold-outness to Jesus Christ, hitching your wagon to him, look like? It's likely not following your widow to mother-in-law everywhere she goes. If it is, like this sermon's definitely for you. But it's likely not. 
What does it look like for you? Only you know. Only you know the areas of your life that are not submitted, not hitched, not sold out to Jesus Christ. Those indulgences of your life, you keep going back to those good things you made into ultimate things. You've overchosen them until they become addictions in your life. You know, there's an overlooked character in Ruth's story who presents a problem to total sold outness. Her name's Orpah. Sounds like Oprah, but it's Orpah. Do you remember, do you remember Orpah? Not many people do, and I, I even mentioned to you her in the story. Orpah, Naomi doesn't condemn her other daughter-in-law, Orpah. She's kind to her, and, and Orpah gets to go back home. She gets to go back to her house, her people. That's a good deal, right? And you might hear that and think, yes, I want to be a Christian like that. I want to be a Christian who, yeah, is sold out to Jesus, but also has the self-sacrificial spouse, also has the comfortable home, also has the nice clothes, the successful career, the great vacations, the handsome children who are great to be photographed. I want to be others who others want to be around, one of those kind of people. I want Jesus plus those things. Friends, there is a danger of and wanting and seeking it all. Jesus plus those things, all those other things. Jesus might give you those things, he might not. But we start to seek those things, start to want that. It's a problem, and we forget that when Orpah returns to her comfort, to her familiarity, to having it all, to her new husband, she also goes back to her gods, her idolatrous pattern of life, and thus her potential addictions that threaten to enslave her. It looks like freedom. It smells like freedom. But it's an illusion, friends. It's slavery. And it ends in death. She's not remembered. And no one writes a book about her. Ruth hitches herself utterly and completely to a, a woman who's a, a, a bitter and suffering servant. There's another whom God calls to be a suffering servant who suffered, who died, but was raised to life. And he is worthy of our trust and our submission. This is a God who's willing to hitch himself to us. Don't forget that. He's willing to hitch himself to us. Where are those areas in your life that need to become under Christ's control? You need to submit to him. One more way. There's one more way for at least a handful of you to respond. Probably only a handful of you guys will do this, but I want to challenge you to think about doing it. That's trying a temporary fast. What is a fast? A fast is abstaining from something temporarily to feast on God. Fasting is feasting. I'll explain what I mean. But if you don't know what might be an addiction in your life, try fasting from something you often turn to for comfort. Some activity which you find yourself always thinking about or looking forward to, your go-to indulgence. Try going without for a week or for a month. And when you feel the frustration and you feel the longing, don't give in. Lean into God, look to him, ask him to satisfy you in a dry and weary land. Feast on him. Fasting is feasting. It's an opportunity to feast and get to know God and depend on him more. Early on in my walk with God, a wise person once told me, hey, if you can't abstain from something, if you can't temporarily abstain from something, it's mastered you. Woo, that's hard to hear. 
Friends, don't let anything or anyone be your master except the God who loves you and has bound himself to you. And you hitch yourself to him. Let's pray.